G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. And if you, we don't ask for much in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast, wherever you're listening to this, and leave us a five-star review. That would be great. We'd really appreciate a couple of minutes of your time to do that. Today, joining myself, uh, Ed, joining myself and Brian in our virtual studio, we're delighted to have uh, Professor Edward Cooper from the Ohio State University um, joining us today to talk about feline urethral obstruction. Thank you very much, Professor Cooper, for joining us. Yeah, and uh, thank you for having me. Well, as, as saying before, we uh, the, the the mics open that you're the inaugural um, person who is not actually a member of the RVC or, or wasn't previously to join us on this on this podcast talking about something veterinary. So, so uh, so thank you very very much for uh, um, allowing us to uh, to chat to you. And I think it's something that um, is obviously across the globe an international um, problem: feline urethral obstruction. And um, and I, I've been watching your studies or reading your studies for for a number of years and uh, and I think um uh, you'd have some wonderful insights about where you think we are with this um management managing this problem and and also where we're going to go in the future so so maybe um I could uh, first by asking Cuba what what how did you get into feline urinary obstruction it's not necessarily a um, I don't know, a, a uh, something that a lot of people are drawn to in, in uh, the field of emergency critical care. So, so how did you first get get interested in looking at this problem? Yeah, uh, thanks. And that's a, that's a great question. I think um, kind of in my initial experiences uh, that, that kind of first even got me interested in emergency and critical care, I was fortunate enough to work in the uh, emergency room at the University of Pennsylvania as a pre-veterinary pre student um, as a volunteer. And among the kind of really cool cases that, that seemed to come in uh, were certainly like trauma cases, but also the block cats. Uh, you know, and I think one of the fascinating things about urethral obstruction or um, maybe one of the exciting things is that uh, these are patients that, that really kind of come in on the brink of death in some circumstances. And uh, through some quick intervention, it's uh, possible to, to get them turned around uh, and at least in the immediate sense, get them uh, from death's door over to, um, you know, very stable and, and doing fairly well. Obviously, there's the longer term ramifications of urethral obstruction and, and the concern for uh, further obstructive episodes down the road. Uh, but in all, in all fairness, it's sort of like that that hero complex of the block cat comes in trying to die, you uh, swoop in with some interventions and all of a sudden they're, uh, they're doing much better. And so I think that was kind of one of the aspects of, of urethral obstruction that, that got me kind of hooked uh, on this disease process and interested in, in kind of investigating things further. Um, because what I also found is when I would ask the question, oh, why do we do that? The answer would be, because that's what we do. Um, and so, you know, wanting to have um, a little bit more evidence uh, to, to guide the things that we do uh, in the management of urethral obstruction is, is also a, a driving force and kind of set the stage for some of my research interests in that area. I love the fact that you said that that, that sort of aspect of dogma, Cooper, that, that uh, why do we do this? It's because that's what we what we do. And, and uh, I think there's, there's few things things that maybe um, 
everyone has their own opinion on. I'm sure you've you've uh, um, given talks about managing urethral obstruction, and and the variety of responses you get from the audience are, are quite are quite varied, aren't they? And and uh, um, maybe difficult to uh, I don't know piece piece together. So um, very very interesting. So what what was your first um, study? What did you first sort of look into? Uh, yeah, and uh, probably the the first main study that uh, that I published in this area <clears throat> was actually a little bit of a controversial one. Uh, and when I came to uh, to Ohio State for my residency, um, having previously been at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where they were uh, at Penn, it was very sort of uh, no to cystocentesis. Uh, and when I got to Ohio State, uh, the, the team here was uh, very sort of um, in favor of, of doing cystos and the initial uh, management of these patients. Um, and also kind of thinking about uh, with the um, internal medicine team that was here, like uh, Dennis Chu um, and uh, Steve DiBartola having this notion that at least some component of the um, obstructive process maybe is um, functional as well as the, the physical plug or stone or, you know, um, kind of the more obvious uh, obstructive cause. And so uh, we set out to do uh, a study that basically looked at, uh, could you manage in patients that are financially restricted that otherwise would be uh, euthanized? Could you try to manage them without catheterization, without kind of all the bells and whistles of normal obstructive uh, cat management? and uh, kind of go with a more conservative protocol of <clears throat> heavy uh, sedation and pain medication, intermittent cystocentesis, um, and see if they are able to ultimately urinate on their own. Um, and uh, what we found in that study is about three quarters of them uh, did successfully urinate within two to three days. Um, now, obviously, we excluded the patients that were severely metabolically deranged. So if they came in severely hyperkalemic, uh, acidemic, uh, bradycardic, then that alternative management protocol was not going to be successful. Uh, but otherwise, um, even in the face of moderate to severe azotemia, uh, we included these cats that, again, otherwise were going to get euthanized um, and sent uh, three quarters of them home successfully urinating. Um, so that uh, study was a little bit dual purpose, um, one to show that uh, you can cysto block cats um, and uh, and not have necessarily catastrophic uh, adverse effects, uh, as well as you know, could you get them to the point where they would urinate on their own without having to pass a urinary catheter, without IV catheter fluids, and things along those lines. It's it's, it's quite I um uh, agree. I remember like reading it at the time, and and uh, I can I can get why it was considered uh, controversial because of I suppose you're you're not doing what I suppose like standard care would be, what what whatever that is of trying to relieve the obstruction with a with a with a catheter. But it's quite remarkable that a number of them got better without that. And 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 why do you? I suppose it was uh, quite a heterogeneous population, but do you think that they didn't have significant, um, I don't know, stones to actually be able to pass them? So what was their understanding of why they got better, I suppose? Yeah, um, so I think, uh, and I did forget to mention, one of the criteria, exclusion criteria was 
um, we did get a, a radiograph, and if they had evidence of stones, uh, they, they couldn't be included in the study um, with the concern that they'd be less likely to pass a stone kind of without, um, without catheter intervention and eventual cystotomy. Um, and so the thought process was uh, at least some component of the obstructive process, um, you know, contributed to either urethral edema, spasm, um, and lower urinary tract inflammation. So if, if idiopathic cystitis is kind of setting the stage for some of these cats to become obstructed, um, if we just kind of allow them to um, relax, uh, provide analgesia, and a little bit of time, uh, could they could they eventually pass that plug on their own? Or uh, for some of the patients where not even a plug is identified, uh, you know, why are those cats obstructing if you know there's no clear evidence of uh, a plug or stone or some physical component? Um, now I think some of the the counter argument to that uh, that has been put forth in the in some of the literature and um, and I think there was even a uh, letter to the editor about this particular paper um, that the evidence of uh, urethrospasm or increased urethral pressure profiles in cats with urethral obstruction is lacking. Um, and, you know, I would also say overall, the extent of that investigation, to my knowledge, uh, was like eight cats in an experimental uh, setting. And so um, I think the part of the goal of that paper was to kind of show like if all we did was give them time and drugs and they peed there has to be like there has to be some functional component to that obstructive process agreed agreed um so you uh, see so, so obviously you got a got a little bit of um uh flack from 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 that having a, a letter to the to the editor um and uh um, and then, and then, do you, you sort of? Do, when did you sort of start revisiting, uh, fe, uh, uh, you know, looking at it sort of clinically or in research purposes for feline urinary tract obstruction? So, what was the, what was the next thing you you um, started to look at? Um, so, kind of still along the the line of, of cystocentesis, um, because I think in that in that original paper we did um, we did wind up finding um, you know in the one quarter of those cats that that didn't wind up successfully urinating and going home, um, they did wind up developing um, either a uroabdomen or hemoabdomen. Um, and so then the question was, okay, was that because we were doing repeated cystocentesis on those patients, um, or was it just a function of the extent of their uh, bladder disease, things along those lines? And so um, kind of uh, the next step was to say, okay, well, let's take a, a population of cats that we perform cystocentesis on prior to catheterization and look at um, what is the incidence of complication. You know, the big concern in doing a cysto is you stick a needle into this pressurized, maybe devitalized bladder, and it's going to pop like a balloon. Uh, does that does that really happen? And our clinical experience at Ohio State had been, no, we cysto cats routinely, um, and we don't see that that complication arise, uh, but let's get some evidence out there. Um, and so probably the, the next big study along those lines uh, was geared towards um, consecutive cats that we performed cysto on prior to uh, passing a urinary catheter, uh, where we did essentially a, a POCUS um, or a, a FAST exam uh, to look for the presence of free fluid prior to the cysto, 
is there free fluid after and is there free fluid the next day? Uh, and what we found in uh, the, gosh, I should remember this, 40 something, I think 43 cats that we enrolled in that study uh, was that uh, actually a decent portion of them, about a third, had fr free fluid in their abdomen before cysto, before anything was done. Uh, now, it was typically a scant to mild amount of fluid, most commonly around the urinary bladder itself. Um, so presumably maybe some uh, venous congestion in the bladder wall leading to kind of serous oozing uh, in the two that we could actually get uh, a abdominocentesis on because again, it was a fairly small amount of fluid. Uh, what we found was that uh, it was not urine. Um, it was the creatinine matched the blood um, pretty closely. And so the, the presumption that it was kind of Again, more of this like serous oozing from the, the bladder wall uh, that creates that effusion. Um, but then as we uh, performed the cystos, what we found is that there was uh, a small portion of the patients that did develop a scant amount of effusion after uh, the cysto was performed, uh, not a tappable amount of fluid. Um, and then the next day, uh, all but one of the total cases that had fluid uh, still had any small amount of fluid left. Um, and so with uh, that um, series of, of cases, there were no significant complications that arose, no evidence of uro or hemoabdomen that developed as a result of cystocentesis. So, so with that, Kibi, you're saying that um, there might be some fluid there already and doing a cysto didn't actually cause a problem. Maybe if I just backtrack one little bit, if I, if I may. So when you're doing a cysto that you seem to um, do um, uh, in, at, at, your, at your institution, so how, how is that actually performed? Sorry to... <laughs> go back a step a bit, but but what what do you guys actually do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our our typical process for performing the cystocentesis with the goal of trying to um, kind of limit whatever risks there may be um, is we'll use uh, typically a twenty two gauge needle on some type of extension tubing uh, connected to a, a three way stopcock and and a syringe um, with the goal that the extension tubing uh, could also be a butterfly catheter. Um, gives kind of the flexibility and mobility uh, rather than just going straight in with uh, with a needle and, and syringe as you would if you're just getting a diagnostic urinary sample. Um, and uh, the other, I think, key aspect is uh, the patient has to be reasonably uh, sedate or reasonably sick <laughs> such that um, if you stick a needle into the bladder of a block cat from the available evidence, uh, that in and of itself does not cause significant trauma to the bladder. Uh, where I think issues can arise is if that cat is sort of alert and angry and um, you stick a needle into its bladder and it tries to jump off the table, uh, that needle kind of wiggling around in there is, is going to be more likely to maybe cause some damage to the bladder. Um, so I think Definitely want to be uh, thoughtful about uh, doing the cysto under under controlled circumstances. Uh, you know, a lot of block cats, if they're really sick, aren't are going to uh, tolerate the cysto just fine. Uh, but if it's a less sick block cat, uh, making sure that they're well sedated. And and you drain the bladder kind of as 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 dry as you can. Is it is would that be right? Yeah, um, and trying to get off as uh, as much as possible. Uh, and one of the key things there is um, in going in with the needle, I'll also kind of target toward the, 
the neck of the bladder with the notion that um, as the bladder shrinks, it's going to kind of fall off the needle if you are not kind of well seated into the bladder itself. And, you know, it doesn't have to get to the point of being completely empty. A big part of the goal of systoing them is, you know, to alleviate some of the discomfort if there's going to be a little bit of a delay until you can uh, pass the urinary catheter. Uh, you know, is it helpful to decrease some of the back pressure that may be working against you as you're trying to pass the, the urinary catheter? And so, uh, again, just getting that bladder away from kind of the turgid and pressurized side of things uh, doesn't require you getting every last drop of urine out of there, uh, but just kind of as much as you can. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much for for, for that explanation. I, th I think it's just good to for people to know like what what happens when because i suppose um that the worst thing is that people have different comprehension about what cystocentesis is for well, for i suppose this procedure so it's good to have clarity with that so if i if i um might move on then to so, see so you were my understanding is you, you looked at um whether cystocentesis is helpful compared to like the the user experience as it were um it, within the time it takes to to unblock a, a cat and whether they thought it's easier to unblock was that was that a a difficult um study to perform and, and what were the, the kind of like challenges with that yeah so uh and, and that was the the study that we did in in conjunction with the uh, university of pennsylvania uh again with the kind of interesting contrast of uh, their we'll say uh, somewhat uh, less supportive of performing cystocentesis as an institution uh, compared to Ohio State. And so um, we, we embarked on that study as, as kind of a prospective, randomized, uh, for all intents and purposes, blinded, uh, you know, study to not just determine is performing cysto safe, which the, our previous study had, had suggested, but also does it does it actually make it any easier to unblock them? Uh, and so at the, at the two site um, study, we essentially um, randomized to either receive a cysto prior to catheter placement or not. Uh, and then whoever was gonna be passing the catheter was out of the room. And so was blinded as to whether or not a cysto was performed. We still clipped the abdomen, made a little um, poke through the skin, uh, even if they didn't get a, a cysto. So everything looked exactly the same by the time whoever was performing the uh, the catheterization kind of stepped up to the plate. And so what we then did was time how long it took to unblock, as well as uh, created a, a scoring system for how difficult it was to unblock them. Um, and then try to use that information as kind of the, the indicator of does systoing them prior to catheter placement actually make it easier. Uh, and what we found in that study is that it did not appear to. So there was no significant difference in the um, time to unblock or in the sort of perceived difficulty in unblocking them. Uh, now, one of the interesting things that I think uh, also came out of that a little bit is uh, the person who does the unblocking in at Penn uh, is typically one of the ER nurses who is sort of highly skilled in unblocking. So that was that different to what happens at the Ohio State? Yeah, so uh, for uh, for our institution, it's typically the fourth year veterinary students and the interns. Uh, so kind of novice 
on blockers um, that uh, that step up when uh, for training purposes and things like that. And so, um, and on average, our our times to unblock were definitely longer, uh, understandably. Um, and what's kind of interesting, uh, we did a little bit of a subgroup analysis looking at um, kind of our our site versus Penn. Uh, and while it still didn't achieve significance overall, um, the the time to unblocking uh, was faster after Assisto had been performed um, and came a lot closer to significance. And it kind of makes sense because if you can already unblock a cat in you know 60 seconds uh, or less, then the ability to find a difference in how long it takes you after doing Assisto, and you can make the argument if you can unblock a cat in 60 seconds, then that's probably faster than performing a Sisto. Um, but in the novice unblocker, that's going to take a fair bit longer. So people new to the world of trying to catheterize these patients, um, maybe maybe there's a little bit more grounds for benefit. And certainly I think the other uh, concern is if you've already got a really over distended bladder that uh, you're flushing, trying to overcome an obstruction, you do run the risk of over distending that bladder to the point of rupture. Um, and there was actually one, one cat in the no cysto group that did have that happen, uh, and one cat in the cysto group that did develop uh, a uroabdomen. And so there was kind of one major complication in, in each group, and so overall there was no net difference in, in the risk of one versus the other. Um, so from a safety profile, uh, Cisto still, still seems to be a safe thing to do. But as far as the evidence, it says, yes, if you Cisto them, it's going to be easier to unblock them. Uh, we don't have that evidence. Uh, and, you know, there may be that subset. Uh, and certainly sometimes if you're trying and trying and you can't get the stone or the, the plug to flush back into the bladder, then maybe that's when you do the cysto to say, let's see if this helps. Um, and again, especially if you've been trying that hard to blow the obstruction back into the bladder, um, are you going to over distend the bladder and potentially cause damage that way? Do, do you think it was difficult asking uh, students um, how, how it how difficult it was when like their experience might be pretty varied? And when you're comparing that to like the, the text at Penn, where they'd be like, yeah, I've done 100 of these it was yeah but you know like how was that difficult yeah so uh that's where we tried to come up with a overall subjective but a little bit more objective system for gauging how difficult uh somewhat related to um the um number of times that flushing needed to happen um so if it was like oh the catheter slid right in versus oh you know it took you know one flush and then the catheter went versus um you know it took multiple flushes or you know ultimately did or catheter efforts have to be aborted um because it was unsuccessful so um it, it's been a little while and i don't remember exactly what all the grades were of of kind of difficulty in unblocking them but we did try to make it a little bit more objective and one of the um kind of more senior, uh, one of the faculty essentially um, was always on site for these um, to kind of contribute to that um, difficulty and unblocking score. Um, and they were also blinded to whether or not a cysto had happened. And so do you think, Cooper, that um, by looking into this now, you kind of put it, put it to bed as it were that um, maybe it doesn't matter if you if you cysto or are you still going to gonna, gonna ask a, a few more questions around this sort of aspect and if so like what what do you want to what do you want to ask now 
Yeah, I think um, I guess from my perspective, I, there are likely still circumstances to that uh, doing a Cisto may be warranted, like particularly um, it's an unstable block cat that comes in and the, the team is not going to have time and opportunity to, um, you know, pull together all the supplies and get them unblocked uh, as, as quickly as would be liked, then doing a Cisto makes sense. You've tried some efforts to pass a catheter and uh, they're unsuccessful, I would Cisto and then try again. Um, you know, as far as how we could investigate that further, uh, short of doing, you know, kind of a, a larger study, you know, incorporate more sites uh, and, you know, can we come up with a different scoring system for the, the difficulty and unblocking them? And it's always hard to tell, like, how, how much of it is just inherent to the nature of the obstruction, like how um, entrenched is that plug or that stone uh, such that, you know, it's not a function of how much pressure is on the other side um, with regard to how difficult it is to unblock them. Um, and so I, I think, I guess um, for me, I, it's kind of been put to bed because um, I don't know that um, trying to do a, a broader study and, and get more power, so to speak, to, to find a difference if one exists, um, other than to say again, like if you're if you're new to the world of unblocking cats, um, it might be a little bit more beneficial to consider systeming them prior to passing the catheter. But maybe we could go down, down that that path at, at the moment. So if you're if you're new to unblocking cats, do you, do you recommend um, your students to anesthetize them or or sedate them? Uh, so that also is a, a little bit of a moving target, um, and I think um, and there was actually a, a study that was just recently published, uh, I think out of uh, out of Iowa State that um, looked at uh, it was retrospective, but looked at um, kind of anesthesia protocols and we'll call it, you know, because whether whether you call it injectable anesthesia versus inhalant, you know, the addition of inhalant anesthesia, um, certainly my strong hope is that these cats are getting some measure of sedation, analgesia, um, and there's lots of different protocols. Um, for a while, we were kind of much more uh, for people new to the world of unblocking, um, you know, maybe place them under anesthesia because then you've kind of got a little bit more control of the situation. You're not having to redose and redose drugs. If it's taking a little bit longer, um, do we maybe get the best level of relaxation of both the cat and the urethra um, under inhalant anesthesia? And so I think that the trade-off of that is the time and effort to set up anesthesia. Um, you know, hopefully they're still monitoring that patient regardless, um, you know, but there's there's a lot more involved in putting them under anesthesia. And again, I think if you're going to unblock a cat in 60 seconds, it's probably not worth 10, 15 minutes to set up and get them under general anesthesia to then go boop and the um, and the catheter is in. Uh, but yeah, I think for, for novices, uh, there is a benefit. Um, in that study out of Iowa State, they did not find any significant difference in um, kind of the various outcomes that they looked at most Kind of the big thing that they wanted to look at was was the reobstruction rate any different um and uh, there was no difference and and overall uh they didn't show any we'll say significant benefit to placing them under general anesthesia versus more of a intravenous anesthesia yeah i i, I always say to um our students as well like when they're starting out you know you might you might be told by your your boss you know to maybe just sedate it but if you're the person 
in kind of control of everything control what you can control right and and don't you know an animal waking up trying to when you're trying to catheterize it is quite um uh um makes you quite nervous or makes makes the whole situation a lot harder to deal with doesn't it so um so, so, so it's in, interesting to to hear that maybe uh i'm not not so far removed from reality yeah. no I, um, I i would agree with that yeah that's cool and um and say so the thing with that has pen changed the way they do things anyway we, you uh, don't have to answer that uh not that i'm aware of i think um you know just for perspective um their original vision for like a clever name to to call that study was the desist study oh. which they said stood for decompressive cystocentesis but i i took it a slightly different way <laughs> Fair enough, um, and and also you say you've you've looked at uh, the instance of like bacteria in uh, in urinary catheterization as well, and 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 was was the idea of that more related to how common that is, or was it because you were seeing a lot of antimicrobials prescribed, or people asking you about should should I give antibiotics to these cats? Is that the best? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, the the driving force for that study was definitely uh, kind of. <clears throat> especially in, in in the more private practice setting, um, the somewhat prolific use of antibiotics with either the notion that these cats come in the door with UTIs or, you know, that we're potentially going to introduce one through the course of passing a catheter, leaving it in place for whatever period of time. Um, and so I think, you know, to, to try to get some more specific evidence to say one way or another, uh, because overall, we have the notion that with feline lower urinary tract disease, uh, the incidence of bacterial cystitis is very, very low. So, you know, why would that risk be greater in a in a cat that decides to to obstruct? And so, um, kind of linked to that previous study, because we were sistering all those cats uh, before passing a urinary catheter. So before running the risk of introducing any sort of exterior contamination, uh, we cultured them. Um, and then we actually uh, cultured them every 24 hours until the uh, catheter was removed to hopefully get that indication of how often do they come in with UTIs and how often do we create UTIs. Um, now, it's fairly well established that putting a patient with a urinary catheter in place on antibiotics does not prevent UTI. Um, you maybe just select for uh, resistance and things like that. Uh, but if we could even also show that there's less um, incidence of us introducing UTI, that would be even more grounds to say, please stop putting all these cats on antibiotics. Um, and so what we found in that study is that none of the 34 cats uh, had were culture positive at the time of presentation. And uh, we had four cats that developed a UTI or became culture positive through the course of their catheterization. Uh, so that worked out to about, I think, 15% or something along those lines. Uh, so again, overall, a, a fairly low incidence. Now, what I'll also say is that in our hospital, we have a very specific catheter care protocol. Uh, you know, the initial catheter is placed under as aseptic uh, technique as you can do, uh, clip and prep the area, drape the area, sterile gloves, all that stuff. Um, and the um, and then every eight hours, we have a protocol where we um, chlorhex, chlorhexidine swab the catheter basically from uh, prepuce 
down uh, down the length of the catheter with the hope of limiting some of that biofilm and potential for bacteria to get in. So uh, it's important to note that if uh, how I don't know how much that protocol played a role, uh, but that would be another area of investigation is, you know, uh, would that incidence have looked different? And the other thing too is if it's a practice that's not as aseptic in their placement uh, procedures or uh, doing catheter care protocols, then uh, that that incidence may certainly be higher, uh, you know, but overall, I think based on the available evidence and there's been a couple of other studies that have reported uh, culture uh, positivity in these in these patients the interesting thing is that the the studies that um, look at it they've placed the urinary catheter they get the urine sample out of that urinary catheter the incidence of bacteriuria or culture positive is higher at the time of presentation uh, versus if you if you system them out of the gates, um, we found none of the cats had UTIs. Uh, so I think that's an important aspect to look at when interpreting some of the other information that's out there. Um, but probably the ideal situation is um, since they probably don't come in with a UTI, um, we may create one through catheterization and indwelling UCAT, but uh, the incidence of that is hopefully on the lower side, it's not fair to then blanket put them on antibiotics. Uh, the ideal situation is actually you remove the urinary catheter and before they go home, do a cystocentesis and culture that, um, you know, urinalysis and culture of that. Now, if you're doing serial monitoring of urinalyses along the way while you have um, the catheter in place and you clearly see development of bacteriuria and pyuria and there wasn't before, well, I think that's a good indication too. So um, that's kind of an in-hospital option for doing that, um, you know, but the gold standard, um, and this needs to be investigated too, um, and it was one of the things that came out as we got our paper submitted, uh, they were like, well, that could have all still been biofilm. How do you know they truly had UTIs? Well, the way to know for sure, um, and actually probably the true gold standard is come back in a week and I perform a cystocentesis, I get your urine and see if you're culture positive, but how often are we going to get owners to do that um, is kind of my my concern there. I think, I think that's a, a really good point, isn't it? And then, then and also, you know, you, you, for you to say to a, a client, you know, with your, your experience and background, I think we're good, come back in a week. You know, that's very different to expecting someone potentially in general practice who might not might not might not be there next week or you know, what is the client going to say if they're not going home with antibiotics and they're concerned that that might be the case. Yeah, I see bacteria there, but it shouldn't be a problem. It's it's I, I think that takes a bit of confidence, understanding, communication and, and some things that might not necessarily um, everyone be comfortable with in doing because of, I, I suppose, the potential if it if it doesn't go well i suppose right yeah and so so you um and, and then I, I saw recently you you looked at uh, like the instance of urinary obstruction with regards to to uh, covid19 well, was good to get a covid19 paper out there keep it well done and uh, uh and so did you any shorts that so there was an increase in urethra obstruction during that during that that time and and uh is, is that just a fair reflection of what you what you thought were you trying to um look at this more in a cat's behavioral way or or was that the reason? yeah 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 absolutely so and i think um you know as as covid uh hit everybody and um you know 
you know how you get that feel where it's just like gosh it feels like we're seeing more block cats since this happened and you know and trying to um, maybe tie in that notion of if idiopathic cystitis is you know maybe the underlying cause or set the stage for obstruction in some portion of these cats and we know that behavioral changes and this kind of sympathetic adrenal imbalance that cats have that that sets the stage for FIC then you know ergo would this kind of major environmental change that everyone experienced, but you know, also cats where they're used to having run of the house um, and their people are now there all day uh, sort of thing, you know, um, is that, did that add at all to the level of stress? Now, it, it, it really is kind of uh, trying to tie A to B to C to D and then saying A equals D. It, it's not a direct tie-in, uh, but it was interesting for us uh, to see that that perception that, oh yeah, it feels like we're seeing more black cats actually played out. Um, and you know that there was overall that that increase. and uh, that was a study we did in con conjunction with the the team at Tufts. Uh, so we kind of put together uh, cases here and cases there. and there may have been also some kind of, geographic and socioeconomic differences in those two sites. Um, so we did also look at the sites individually as well. Um, and actually the effect was uh, greater at the at Tufts. Uh, so the relative increase in uh, incidence of UO that they saw was higher than than ours. Um, and then we put them together. We were both higher, but then we put them together and it was even more significant, um, the difference pre-COVID to during COVID. Wow. And can, can I ask people uh, so what what are you what what are you looking at at the at the moment if you if you can share that? But also like what what questions do you think that because you are ask, asking a lot of like fundamental questions, I think. So what what questions would you like to answer with regard to reasonable obstruction? I mean you can limit it to just your top five if you'd like rather than uh, rather than all of them. Yeah. So, uh, so what are you what are you looking at, at the moment if you if you might share that and, and you know what do you what do you want to look at? Yeah, I think um, really the uh, we'll call it the holy grail is um, you know what can we do that decreases the risk of reobstruction? Uh, you know, and uh, is there some combination of medications that can do it? Uh, you know, what overall impact the uh, envir any environmental changes may have? Uh, and I think. You know the the recent papers that uh, have looked at prazosin, uh, you know, and this is also a little bit of a uh, quagmire, but um, you know because prazosin is one of those things that just entered into common use uh, because it makes sense, right? So urethral relaxant, let's get them on this medication. Hopefully, it'll help. Uh, and you know, we now have three studies. Uh, with you know all differences in in methodology and uh, some limitations and things like that, uh, but now three studies that either failed to show any benefit or with the most recent uh, retrospective, the suggestion that uh, they will do worse in giving them prazosin. Um, now I think I don't think it's fair to say that prazosin made those cats block more, um, but um, the the firm evidence. Uh, both prospective and retrospective suggests that it doesn't help. Um, 
So, so what is going to help? What combination of, if not sort of overt urethral relaxation, is it more central decrease in some of that uh, sympathetic overdrive that may contribute to some of the um, inflammation and set the stage for obstruction or reobstruction? Uh, is it giving them sufficient analgesia? And what good options do we have for oral analgesia at home for cats? Is it more um, behavior modification? You know, do we need to hit the mark with um, medications that, you know, like uh, a gabapentin or, um, you know, an antidepressant, uh, recognizing that, you know, the antidepressants, most of them aren't gonna kick in in the kind of at least short-term window of, of reobstruction. Um, so my my vision, and this is also going to need to be a, a multi-center study, um, is to start picking away at some of the other medications that may or may not be beneficial for these cats. Uh, Acepromazine, gabapentin, um, alprazolam, um, buprenorphine, uh, you know, um, which of these is going to, or are any of them really going to have an impact uh, because other than prazosin, there's not good evidence uh, for any medication having a significant impact on outcome. Uh, and even some of the at-home behavior modification stuff, like environmental enrichment and um, water intake and things like that, um, some of that stuff has been shown to be helpful for FIC, but not directly necessarily helpful for obstruction. Um, and so I think that would also be a, a potential goal because I think given the how impactful one obstructive episode can be, uh, a lot of owners are willing to give that a go. Um, once you hit that second obstructive episode, that's when uh, they might start to say, well, gosh, is this going to happen a third time, a fourth time? Um, and, you know, so I think a big part of the focus uh, really needs to be, is there anything um, you know, are we dispensing whatever meds we're dispensing unnecessarily? Do you, do you think, and I don't want to put you on a spot, but I, I have this sort of conversation sometimes with residents or faculty and, and that maybe something like prazosin might work in some cats. Right. And it, and and I suppose like we, we think of like a one size fit all and, and, but maybe that's not the way it is, but maybe in a subset of cats, and I suppose it's identifying who, who are those cats that, want to have gabapentin or prazosin or buprenorphine right and and yeah. how do we identify that and i i don't know that yeah no i i think that's a great point and um i think we sometimes lose track of the fact that any study for the most part is is population statistics right you take this whole group and on you know on average does that that group benefit or not um and so yeah i think it is difficult to um, to know if you take that cat or that cat, um, is it going to be helpful to them? Um, and as long as it's not harmful, as long as there's a chance that it's helpful for some and not others. And I think another good example of that is um, the administration of oral buprenorphine to cats. And this is a little bit off target, but also something that is not uncommonly maybe utilized in post-obstructive management for cats is that um, 
you know, originally it was like, oh, squirt it in their mouth, it works great. And then subsequent evaluation of that data um, and subsequent studies was like, well, maybe not. And it's really unpredictable how good oral absor absorption of buprenorphine is in cats. And so is it then fair to say we'll never give oral buprenorphine to cats because it's never going to work? Or because it's so unpredictable and my clinical experience and the years that I did that was yeah, it it seems to it seems to help them, um, and so uh, so that's where that's where it gets really tricky, you know. But then also, if it's x amount of dollars to send that prescription out the door, and it may or may not be helpful, uh, is it worth it? So I think that's where uh, harder evidence and bigger studies are really going to be needed. And the biggest challenge, especially with the two prospective Prazosin studies, was that they um, they were underpowered. And then like in the post hoc power analysis, it was going to be like thousands and thousands of cats in order to find a difference. Though if you look at both of those studies, in both of those studies, the incidence of reobstruction was higher in the prazosin group. It just didn't reach significance. So then the, the conclusion was, well, there's no difference. Um, you know, so the question then becomes, well, if you had the power, would they have also maybe demonstrated that the risk of reobstruction was actually higher in the prazosin group? And so that's where that concern in my mind is enough for me to say I wouldn't give prazosin because there's no proof that it's, it may be helpful to that one cat, but overall um, I'm not sure that it's worth it, especially if there's any chance that there's an increased risk of obstruction. And the only reason that I could come up with is maybe that process of trying to get it into the cat stresses them out and they're at a greater risk. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I've tablets are not small, are they? Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, absolutely. What one, uh, I, I know we're, we're kind of coming to the end of, of, of time, but one thing I, I suppose I'm sure you're, you're asked a lot by your students and, and I don't know whether we need to have an answer for this, but, but if you're going to, Deobstruct a cat with a urinary catheter. How long do you leave it in for, Professor? Ah, uh, great question. Uh, and this is something that uh, I think is uh, is it is a difficult one to answer. And and historically, again, that's because that's what we do. Uh, mentality has been: I'm going to leave it in for at least 24 hours because you know inflammation's got to decrease. I want to get the bladder good and flushed out, that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, but we don't have any evidence that really suggests what's the ideal time to keep that catheter in place. Um, so the the criteria that I tend to to use, um, and this is all just kind of uh, extrapolation, which is the worst kind of evidence, um, you know, but obviously they need to have resolved their uh, metabolic derangements and their azotemia. Um, you know, if they're having any significant post-obstructive diuresis, uh, so if their urine output is way under or way over, especially if it's way over, uh, you want to leave that catheter in place until hopefully that normalizes because otherwise then you have no way to track it and make sure that you're keeping up with the post-obstructive diuresis. And then uh, the gross character of the urine that's coming out. Um, you know, if it's still gritty, bloody, gross, then the notion that some of that stuff, if you pull the catheter, is then just going to plug up the urethra seems a little bit higher. And so the, um, and there was actually one study, I think out of Penn, where one of the few things that, uh, 
or aspects that they found did tie into the risk of reobstruction was gross character of the urine. So there is a little bit of evidence to say that, you know, make sure that that is a little more clean running before you pull the UCATH. Um, and so for the, the cat that comes in that was not particularly azotemic, shows no evidence of post-obstructive diuresis, and their urine is looking great by 12, 18 hours, I'll pull that UCATH um, and give them time to pee because the trade-off is, just that catheter being in place is irritating and maybe triggering some inflammation. So it's kind of that that delicate balance. Um, there was one other study, and I'm trying to remember um, which one it was, but it that did suggest that the duration of time that the catheter is in place, so the shorter time that the catheter was in was the um, made it more likely that they would reobstruct. Um, and I think the challenge with that study is that as a retrospective study, it didn't control for, was that a cat that pulled out his catheter prematurely? There weren't any specific criteria that were utilized other than sort of the cat pulled it out or the clinician decided to, to pull it out for whatever reason. So I think that that is another study that needs to be done to look at it more objectively and say, you know, um, using whatever established criteria, I decide to pull the UCATH versus, you know, I give it 24, 48 hours and pull the UCATH. Um, I, I, I don't know whether to, to try and get in, uh, we're talking about like when to remove your catheter, but your, uh, your, your pre-management of, of these cats. So I, I, maybe, maybe I'll leave that for another time and uh, maybe we could chat about that. But but maybe uh, to round up, Cooper, do, do you think if so when you're talking to your uh, your students are about to to go out into the big wide world, what what sort of what uh, I don't know tips do you give? I suppose for for managing UO, what what do you send them off with into the big wide world? Yeah, I think uh, kind of the biggest take home messages are uh, when these cats present, um, you know, ideally they should be managed in a facility that has twenty four hour care. Uh, and so if that is not your clinic, then, you know, even if you do the initial stabilization or catheter placement, ideally get them someplace that does. Um, there are clinics that manage them kind of in-house, no overnight care, potentially with an open urinary catheter. Not ideal. Um, if, uh, if that's the only option, if the owner won't refer, if that's all you got, then alrighty, but for the most part. Um, and then the biggest things uh, with regard to you know, the initial management is remembering that if you've got the really sick block cat, it's the hyperkalemia that's killing them. And so in that context, sometimes people get hyper-focused on, I got to get this blocked cat unblocked, which you do. But even if you snapped your fingers and that bladder was magically empty, it's hours before GFR resumes, hyperkalemia is going to get resolved. And so you've got to think of those emergency interventions like calcium gluconate, insulin, dextrose, tributylene, things along those lines um, to manage what's immediately trying to, to kill that cat. Um, and then be kind to the urethra, I think is the other big one. Uh, you know, there should be minimal force in trying to pass a catheter. Um, please don't use rigid plastic uh, Tomcat catheters. There are lots of good options for softer catheters that are still just as effective at, at uh, relieving the obstruction. Um, and then make sure that they're adequately sedated, analgesed, and or anesthetized for that process um, so that you're not trying to rush and ram a catheter in and tear the urethra. Because uh, I think that is 
one of the biggest complications and potentially a life limiting complication that uh, that these guys can run into. Um, and then post obstructive management is really pain meds, fluids, uh, and time. And then, you know, pull the catheter when you think the time is right to be determined um, and make sure that they can pee before you kick them out the door. These are these are wise words. Um, j just uh, out of interest, have you, have you um, played with the the, the tiny uh, Foley catheters in, in cats, like the three and a half uh, French Foley catheters? I haven't. I haven't. I think those would be um, those would be of interest. Um, and uh yeah, um, so it, it, that's one of the things on, on my list because um, it would be uh, kind of interesting to uh, not like use that both as a method for using the Foley as a method to uh, kind of keep the catheter in, in the cat without having to uh, to stitch it in necessarily the way that we can do in dogs. Um, so, so yeah, that would be something that would be interesting to try out. Yeah, I, I've never, um, I, I, you know, speaking to obviously a few uh, emergency critical care people over over the years and and uh, i've never found somebody that says you know this urinary catheter this is this is gold everyone has their own thing or doesn't really matter what they what they use but um but we all like new things don't we say so, so um I've, I've only used it or tried to use it once and uh, it was too big for the cat but but anyway but but apart from that um yeah it's quite exciting that making smaller things or more cat friendly things it might be better than suturing things into the prep use Yep. Um, thank you so much for your your time, uh, Cooper. It's it's um, a, a delight to be able to speak to you about such a subject that you're uh, uh, internationally renowned for, and um, and still plugging away, uh, um, you know, trying to solve these dogma questions of why do the Ohio State University do it one way and Penn does it the other way? But maybe we're never going to answer those questions or yeah. <laughs> uh, in our lifetimes. But no, no, but it's really it's really good and. and um, and I think it, it's really important that people, you know, people are aware of that the dogma out there, and also, you know, that you can do things, but um, just do them well, and also know why you should do them in the first place, right? Which I, yep. which I think is 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 really good. So, um, so uh, so thank you so much for your your time today, and thank you for dealing with all the the technical issues that we we so seldom have here. Thank you very yep. much. Yeah, no problem. Cool. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, let me know if uh, if you ever want to do this again. Okay, I will do. I will do. Many right. thanks. Cheers. Great. Cooper. Thank you. Many thanks for your time today, Professor Keeper. And thanks again for listening. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Acast, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any others. We'll play some show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC clinical podcast into your search engine, it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or you can now um, follow us or message us on Instagram at RVC clinical podcast. Until next time, bye-bye.